Hey there, it's Pastor Evan here. Welcome to Unpacked. This is a new series, Unpacking Life as a Messy Human. We're exploring the soul and the strength that comes from the journey of trying to live life authentically. We hope you find it helpful and that you can see yourself in the conversations, the stories, and the interviews. Have a listen and subscribe. This week on Unpacked, we're chatting with Deb Arndt, Executive Director of Soulstream. She's a spiritual director and an Enneagram expert. Deb and I discuss spiritual direction and her journey of healing through some of her inner work and self-awareness. Basically, today we're going to go all over the map, talking about a lot of different things. It's kind of my favorite way of doing things. We talk about everything from emotions to her role at Soulstream to spiritual direction and a little bit about the Enneagram. Deb is seriously one of our favorite people, full of wisdom and full of great stories. I hope you enjoy. Remember, please like, subscribe, and even leave us a review. Well, how nice to see you guys. Well, I've been doing, um, so Soulstream does these weekly partner connects kind of thing there. And so maybe this is good for me to have to be on this end of it to even deepen my empathy. Or what <laughs> these people that I asked to do this kind of thing and launch it out there kind of like la you know, you know, whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's actually a very exposing, tender, vulnerable kind of thing to do. I think too, it's like because you don't get to be in control, then you also don't get to be in control of how you feel about a question that's asked or or uh I've been on a kind of a journey this last year. And maybe we'll get into this. It's not in my questions, but, but of trying to explore just what my feelings and my emotions are actually saying to me as information. And as a seven, that's a, that's hard work. Like it's actually quite hard work, mostly because you start realizing that you don't like them. (laughs) I I think in particular, the, the negative ones you don't like. And, and, and so it is, it's like shining a light on things that, Right. Like the shallow end of the pool, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> how, how you see it. And, yeah. and, or I think for me too, on this, this particular journey, it's been like real realizing as I reflect, reflect back on other experiences I've had, I, I realize how, Oh man, my, I was completely emotionally out of control there. Hmm. I just didn't realize I was just yeah. completely yeah. ignoring any of those things. Yeah. And then you see like what you could have done so much better if you could have just been aware of like, oh, that was total fear happening there. Yeah. Well, I love what you said about being curious or like using it as like awakening it to it in that way of like, there's some information here to be offered me. And so, and I think of that as curiosity, if I can shift from, you know, judgment or fear or anxiety or self-recrimination and move to curiosity it almost always cracks it open in a different way and but that in and of itself can be kind of challenging yeah it's interesting you'd use that word because that word has been a key word for this whole journey for me and it was shocking i I actually never considered curiosity as an emotion and then that's kind of been what's been a part of our journey lately is like, okay, well, how do we just keep, keep pursuing the emotion of curiosity and all these other things. So whether, (laughs) whether we're talking about the soul 
or we're talking about the Enneagram, or we're just talking about a a particular scripture text or whatever. It's like, how can we, how can we access the emotion of curiosity and all of the little things? And I'm sure as a spiritual director, you, this is something you're taught early on is to, you know, to pay attention to the little thing that somebody says that goes, there's possibly something more there. How has the pandemic been for you personally? Like, has this been, we're going to get into some other stuff, but like, is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Have there been good things that, that God has revealed? Is there? Yeah. Probably the one I'd have to say it's mixed bag, like lots of people, you know, cause even when you ask it and I cast my thought, you know, over the last 14 months or so, again, what rises in me isn't as much maybe pandemic related things specifically, which tells me again about my place of privilege that in so many ways, I am not impacted in severity at all um, to the things that are going on for people. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. But even that that's what rises in me reminds me of that, that, that I really do have things good. You know, we live on an acreage with lots of room and lots of light. We don't have young children that we're trying to work through education with. We don't, I mean, Laverne's mom is in a home um, in Calgary, but the dementia is so severe that, so we don't have some of those challenges of aging parents Mm. that are isolated and, you know, that we feel all of that. you know, the work that we do, that I do, has been able to move really fully online and, and there's actually been a lot of gift in that. So I recognize that. And so then I realize, oh, what rises in me is more sort of maybe pivotal moments. So yes, the first three months of the Marie Kondo, you know, like, oh, I'm going to clean every cupboard in my house and, and, you know, sort of doing a little bit of that and that actually feeling kind of good. And then thankfully spring comes and is like, okay, I don't really care about that, that much. It's not going to happen. And then we experienced a real grief as a family last summer because our kids were expecting their first child, our first granddaughter, and she died in utero at 31 weeks. Um, mm. So that was very hard. That happened last July. They had a little girl named Sophie Hope. And um, and so, yeah, that was, you know, that rises mm. in me as kind of a whew, they're expecting again due in June. And mm. so we're really grateful for that. Um, but it's it's got its own dynamics, the pregnancy even. It's a long, slow haul for Rita, our daughter-in-law, for sure. And, and although mm. I don't not have hope, I almost can't bring myself to just say, well, when the baby comes, just because we've just lived it too strongly where there isn't really a reason, but that's not how it turned yeah. out. So that rises in me. It's like, oh, yeah, poof, you know. Um, I discerned last year taking this new role as executive director of SoulStream. And the question was asked to me back in February, I think, which its own process was interesting because I really thought my answer was no. I had been asked before in casual kinds of ways about it. And I'm always, nope, I know I don't want to do that. So then when it came more officially in the process SoulStream uses, I was probably most first off surprised that there was even a sense in me that you should at least confirm it's a recent no, like a current no, not a no that you decided a year or two ago. It's like, okay, fair enough, I should do that. And then to have it crack open and have, um, yeah, have the spirit just so sweetly meet me in very specific ways to know that, to say yes, which just was such a surprise. So that rises in me, but then also the movement and the transition to doing the job 
um, not knowing the pandemic would be part of it. And I guess that does connect a bit. I knew a lot of it would be online, but I didn't know that when I said yes, from then on, there would be no in-person, like I wouldn't be working with the course that I work with. And so my, some of my fellow, you know, facilitators, there wouldn't be an online get or there wouldn't be a in-person gathering partner gathering where both my role would be mm-hmm. affirmed. There wouldn't be a final board meeting where Doug, you know, the last director and I like there were just, there's been none of that. So I did have a revelation about a month ago of like, Hmm, um, no wonder it's maybe feeling kind of pinchy and like, ah, what I? and that would be pandemic related sort of like, yeah, it's, it's a long haul to not have in-person stuff and with people you work with and you love and trying to navigate now leadership and really not knowing when that's going to end for sure. We had small little hope we were going to have some meetings together in June and, at a retreat center Sorrento outside of Kelowna in BC, but increasingly we kind of know that's not going to be happening where things are at. Um, so it's like an ongoing practice of saying, well, maybe, and maybe not, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe this and maybe not. And currently I find myself just not even really wanting to think plan wise, kind of just, here I am. And maybe that's at the epitome of the whole present moment, the practice of the present moment in the, Mm-hmm. in the you know some of it's protective I can tell that but some of it actually feels like get up here's what today is isn't it good yeah. you know that's a that's that's a long answer but to say I do recognize that even that it's not the pandemic specifically that rises in me um, I'm glad yeah. Laverne and I still like each other <laughs> I was gonna say it must be very quiet there for you because like Laverne, it wouldn't be known as a person, a man of many words. <laughs> well, you know him well enough to know it all depends on the mood he's in a little bit, well, right? So, however, in general, that's true. I was thinking about this a little bit in light of even sort of, well, this isn't even Enneagram, but personality. And yeah, you know, uh, what do they say on average? People say 8,000 words a day. I remember telling that to like Laverne and our sons when they were little or one time. And they were all like, well, you can just have our words too, mom. <laughs> so I'm like, great. Like, I have no problem. Give me all of them, I guess. But that was probably in the days when I was trying to get our sons to talk a little more, you know. And, and, uh, yeah. Um, but yes, in general, it is very quiet. And in general, I, I, mean, I, I miss people in the flesh. And I do find even now that when I get to be with people, I had lunch with a couple of friends yesterday in Saskatchewan, we can do that. We still, we can go into restaurants. There's something that happens deep within me that I can't even name for sure. And I definitely know the positive hormones, like the serotonin, they get released. Like I can feel it almost afterwards. And it's not even so much that the conversation has to be anything so special or it's something happening in the kinesthetic um, engagement that, I've always known about myself, but probably have come to realize even more. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, yeah. I, a couple of things jumped out for me. The first is my heart breaks for people who have experienced loss this year, like actual, like somebody is, has passed away kind oh, of yeah. loss because I really just don't, I just don't think we're made to mourn alone and we're certainly not made to mourn on a computer screen. No. And you know, for those who, who are like, we're going to do something when the pandemic is over. I think it just is prolonging out the, the process of healing. And, yeah. and uh, I, my, my observation with people I care for 
is that at some point they find themselves in no man's land. So, so to speak, yep. where, you know, six months later and they're just, they can't even identify that, it, that they're actually grieving right now, that this is a grief thing that's happening. And, and um, so that, that one, and there's not a good solution. Like there isn't a good way through it really like to say, well, try this then. Cause it, it's just not the same. And then um, anyone who, who started a new job, uh, especially those who started it right before the pandemic and, you yeah. know, you come into it, like you got the hopes and the, this is what I'm going to hoping to do. And this is going to be all the best parts of the job. And oftentimes that has to do with the people. And then you had to redefine how you did, did yeah. your job and you didn't know how to do it in the first place. So, it, <laughs> so it, right. It's like really, really hard. And I, I obviously, you know, you're, you're in our family of churches and there's been a few pastors that have, have taken new roles and, and moved and all this. I just, I'm sitting here in my basement, just shaking my head going, how are you doing that? Like, well, you know this about me. I I'm pretty quick witted and sometimes my wit uh, is appropriate. And sometimes it's not. <laughs> so self-aware of you. So self-aware of you. <laughs> I, I rely on people giving me the benefit of the doubt, you know, that it's like, oh, he just got carried away. But if you've never met me and you don't know what my heart really is about and what I really love and how, how passionate I can be about certain things, yeah. it'll be quite easy to come up with some pretty harsh judgments of, so I, great admiration for some who have yeah. made transitions in, in the pandemic. And then also some, some concern for them as well to go, do, do people get to understand the essence of who you are? Right. It's a tricky thing. And yet it kind of works in its own way too. I have been so amazed at how effective Zoom has been for our spiritual mm -hmm. direction for we're offering living from the heart fully online this year for the first time. So here's a group of people who, you know, they haven't met each other, they haven't met us. And yet the level of, again, vulnerability and community that's developing and stuff is like, I mean, why would we doubt that God's creative spirit can transcend these kinds of things? But what you're naming is also really true in the human experience. And actually, I was listening to it, it made me think of, um, we were, were now having a conversation with Rob Lone, so it'd be maybe six or eight weeks ago already. But he was talking about how studies have shown that following um, like 9-11 and the Oklahoma bombing. So following these crises where spiritual care providers especially stepped up and were there and kind of navigated 18 months afterwards, there was a pretty mass kind of burnout exodus. Mm -hmm. Like, And so the speculation, what they've been talking about and wondering about, especially from the perspective of leadership, you know, grounding and support and is, so what's going to happen with this one? This was not a one day event. So the crisis has now been going on for, you know, 14 months where, and it's not just spiritual care providers. I think the same could be true this time around teachers and healthcare workers for sure. And everything, what is it going to look like? What, what's 18 months from now or whatever that that's an arbitrary number, but, and what can we do in the midst of it to try to strengthen or, or be in it as well as we can, I guess, that I have such a curiosity about that and such a desire, I guess, it just keeps me committed. I do wonder, feel maybe some concern even, and even within our small, you know, our local family of churches, for example, the Canadian 
and then on a much macro level, what's it, what it's going to mean. Okay. So I, I do have like questions to actually ask you, uh, although I do think we just got some things that would be good for us. So um, t- tell us a little bit about, about uh, SoulStream, like just, just give us a, a snapshot on like, like what's the elevator speech for SoulStream? Well, SoulStream is a contemplative community um, whose mission statement is to nurture contemplative experience with Christ leading to inner freedom and loving service. Hmm. And, um, and so there's kind of two trajectories, really SoulStream almost started by people, well, Steve Imbach, who was offering spiritual direction training. He had learned it from a sister himself. And then there were pastors largely in the BC area that wanted him to kind of train them in this way of being. And then a group of them, the founding partners kind of came together and said, well, I think there's something about this. And they, so they developed the values and commitments and uh, became a nonprofit. So there are courses offered, Living from the Heart and the Art of Spiritual Direction Training. It's where I took my, my, uh, my spiritual direction training. But it's also a, a community as in a partnership. You can choose to join SoulStream as a partner. And really all that means is that you, you want to align with these values and commitments with a group of people who also desire to live this way in the world, to live this expression of Jesus, to live with this level of intentionality in hard places, to live without maybe, it's not doctrinal, it's values and commitments and that's deliberate. Um, And so, yeah, so there are a hundred and, I think there's like 101 partners now. And I find Mm -hmm. that work extremely meaningful. My own personal journey with the church has not really included a lot of significant pain. Um, however, that is not true for many, many, many believers whose journey with the church. We, we hear the term in soul stream fairly often recovering evangelicals. Um, there's just a, it's, it's just true that people who still desire relationship with God and with Jesus and with the spirit and to be grounded there, um, to have maybe a slightly different way of being invited into that and thinking mm-hmm. about it and experiencing it, which would be, we're all about the experience. This is about having experience with Jesus, not just a belief system. So what's the relationship like? So that's, that's probably a snapshot. Yeah. So uh, curious about the, you made a statement about intentionally not doctrinal. Yes. Yeah. So is that about uh, just making sure that there aren't too many walls that stand in the way or barriers or what is that yeah that's a good question um i would say that there's a lot of truth in that that it's not um to live with values and commitments not doctrine probably feels less like there's a line in the sand then when whether you're either on this side of something or on the other side values and commitments feel a little more like that moving like all of us live anyway, right? That there's a little bit of organic movement that we're not, I'm not either fulfilling this commitment or not. I have this desire to live in this particular way and I desire to pay attention to it. And so, yeah, probably your description is accurate. It feels less walled. Um, I think for me, even starting the role, paying attention to not wanting, like not wanting to become an institution. I was having a conversation with Jeff Imbach, who's one of the founding partners too, and he has a sensitivity to that, you know, and we were just talking about, well, what would be evidence, you know, because it's not that uncommon for an organization that grows to then move more in the direction of what would be 
be institutionalizing, I guess, or whatever, because mm -hmm. you need policies, yeah. or you need this, or you need that. And we were talking about rigidity as being one of them, you know, some sort of, and maybe it, maybe it reflects that too, a little bit mm -hmm. um, of that kind of heart and desire. It, I think it is, a, it's an interesting thing that, that, you know, even inside the, you know, my context is the church context that, you know, one of the, our, our real goals at Lakeridge is that it would be a safe place for all to come and experience both Jesus and community. Community is experienced in Jesus and Jesus is experienced in community. And so it's yes. like, how do we create that safe place? Yes, exactly. But, but I am increasingly aware of how humans need in order to have safety, they kind of need to know where the, where the walls are. And so I, I, over the last decade at Lakeridge, I'm continually asked, you know, where are the, where are the lines in the sand? And, and I, I, you know me well enough too, to know that I don't, I'm not a huge fan of, yeah. of that kind of language. In fact, resist it quite, quite heavily. And I, I even would say that on some levels, you know, the, the planting of, a, of a, being a church planter is a part of that, like that entrepreneurial renegade. No, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and create something that is unique and different. Yeah. And, and so over the decade, I, I increasingly find myself with our people trying to uphold that value. And it get, it's get like, it's a funny thing because in church planning, they tell you in the first two years of your church plan, you're creating the DNA of what you're going to be. And I disagree. I actually think I'm going to disagree on it. I go, no, actually it's in like year seven when you're like holding on and saying, no, that seems like such a small thing to you, but yeah. it's one of the walls that are going to, we're going to be throwing up a wall when we do that. And I know you don't see it, but it's there. And, and uh, so I, I would say the last few years, not, not this last year so much as the years prior to it, just, just recently holding on to the DNA that, that we want to be a safe place for all people to come. Well, and probably Enneagram numbers do factor in on how people respond to a lot of that. Yes, they so. do. <laughs> Before we get to that. Yeah, that is. And I do want to talk about that. Can you quickly tell me this? I like to ask spiritual directors this. Uh -huh. what, what, is, what is spiritual direction? I'm not sure that listening well and deeply is a very honed skill in our society. So at the heart, I would say probably what I'm doing in spiritual direction is listening deeply to another. Um, and that's unique. I think many people will say that even just having opportunity to hear themselves express something and, you know, and often then just get asked the question, well, what do you hear? As you've just told me that whole story, like, what do you hear right now? Like just that alone drops them down into a whole other level of listening to um, themselves and to God and to what is, what has life and what's stirring there for them. So I, I would say that might be at the heart of it the most, because it's not, there's no, there's no magic pen, you know, pendant being waved during spiritual direction. You know, there's no smoke screen. There's no like, oh, you know, angel on the cloud. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, sometimes people can have their own experience in whatever way I'm not offering that as I, um, as I sit with somebody, but to, like, yeah, there's just something so sacred about people's mm -hmm. stories and all of their mess and beauty and whatever, and just making space for that. 
And then also I would say that that word we were talking about earlier, that curiosity to hold that kind of space with deep hospitality, like no genuinely to notice, like, because I'm committed myself to paying attention to what triggers me. So if I'm noticing that as I'm offering spiritual direction, I, it's a, it's an ethical commitment that I'm also in supervision. And that's the kind of thing I would take, like, Ooh, what maybe snags me that makes it difficult for me to hold that kind of radical hospitality in the space of, you know, what, what's being shared here. So I think that's another piece of it, that there's just this, this, this trust in that kind of hospitality that's going to make room for God and the person. And I, I would add to that, that it's like, you have to give up the need to be in control of that outcome, right? For that person. Yes. Right. And so for different personalities, I'm sure that's, that's really hard. So you don't wave any magic wands. That's too bad. I, I, it's funny because well, I, I, I sometimes do this, you know, <laughs> oh, okay. and maybe that's my, you know, my little, like, you know, wave. We, we have a, we have a mutual friend uh, and the, the mutual friend, you, I used to work with him for quite a long time. And, and I know that you guys are really good friends and, and we have interviewed him. I'm not sure if you had a chance to hear the podcast with him. No. I, it was actually ended up being a two-part, uh, two-parter with Rob, and uh, it is funny because the 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 thing I always used to tease him about because I was working with him when he was doing his training for spiritual direction, so I was <laughs> I was tricked into spiritual direction. So I tell people all the time, like I didn't know it was happening, yeah. but occasionally he'd wave his hand in front of me, and I'd be like, "What just happened?" <laughs> You know, I'd go in saying, I'm not really upset about this thing. And it did feel like he yodded me a little bit. You know, you're not upset about that. They're like, you're right. I'm not really upset about that. It's this other thing that's happening. <laughs> Anyways, he's still, oh, if you won't offer the Yoda, you know, wave your hand. Rob will, I think he still offers it as a, it's yeah, an extra, it's an extra fee, but he will do it anyways. <laughs> or maybe it's an extra level of training. I haven't got yet. So I just have not been, so that has not been bestowed upon me. So. Level up to master. Level level. Okay. <laughs> I, so, I love what you say about not having control though, because mm-hmm. I think when I first started, when I did my spiritual direction training, I didn't even really know anything about spiritual direction. And I definitely didn't know whether I would actually offer this, you know, as a, some kind of formal practice. But for me, one of the gifts in it was weaning me from my own belief in my clever words. Because <laughs> I like words a lot. And I like, you know, to read and be able to offer this or that or whatever else. And, and I, I just can see it so clearly as part of God's gift of transformation for me Mm. because you're not in the teacher mode and you're not in the you're not trying to come up with the words to say you're if anything you're trying to surrender those so that you can allow it to unfold the way it needs to and for me that was there was as much gift in my own um, I'm, I'm grateful to still have things like this where I get to talk and I'm grateful to facilitate and teach because it's a huge part of how I've been created and I'm deeply grateful for the space of spiritual direction where um I get to practice regularly. I'll tell you a little why, why I would say that. So, because that actually is the temptation in pastoral ministry. I, I, I would consider myself to do a, quite a bit of spiritual direction for people, but I'm only good at being a spiritual director. My role as a spiritual director, kind of as a pastor is only good as long as I can give, I personally can give up control of what people leave my office thinking or pondering because when they do that they're in my 
in my unhealthier moments, it's like, no, I need to wrap that up because if I don't wrap that up for them, they're going to leave and they're going to talk to somebody else. And then that's going to confuse that person. And then this is going to create that. And then that person is going to be back here in my office as would be more work for me. Yeah. Right. And so, so over the years, there have been plenty of moments when I'm speaking to somebody, we, we get into a conversation that, that, that honestly, sometimes people need to leave with some uncertainty. Yeah. Like that's actually part of the, the journey of growing as people of faith is that there are moments of uncertainty and where we got to, we got to question things and go away. And, and I can only do it well when I give up the control of the uncertainty as they leave. And, um, and sometimes I can't do it because I'm just like, no, you're going to create, as you go off to talk this through with people, you're going to create confusion for them. And I want to protect them. And then I can't do it. I can't be a good question asker or even yeah. the, the temptation is I can't hold loosely yeah. sometimes the questions of others. Oh, but even to hear you name that you're aware of that, uh, I just think, well, how good is that? The truth is you're in a, you're, it's a role, you're in a container that does carry other expectations of it. Mm -hmm. And so that to navigate that is just kind of, true right of that reality mm -hmm. um but to even hear you raise that you're aware of that and that you know that i just like well oh yeah because <laughs> because there's i think we just again we just don't and that to get the spiritual direction container really does have it you know a much like some people will come i remember one of the first person that came launched into something and then when she got to the end of her little spill said okay so tell me what to do I'm like, then I have to wave my magic wand. Oh no, my friend, you have the wrong idea here. <laughs> you know, and yeah. but there is something about the container of spiritual direction. You know, they've come with that. I don't know whether the word will desire for sure, but maybe a willingness almost. They're not expecting that. Mm -hmm. And if they are, then that's part of the practice itself that kind of allows them to move away from that, looking at it that way. But yeah. but pastors have a unique, that's a unique place to hang out we're we're still yeah. trying to run an organization at the same time right yeah. there, there's a balance and i i'm not bashing the role of a pastor not at all or, no. or other i'm just saying there are some realities right. that are present there for exactly for right. the different roles and and that may be actually one of the very very clear lines between what a spiritual director is and what a pastor is and yeah. and you do have to kind of almost be able to put different hats on and go yeah no, I'm going to let this person leave with attention that they don't have all the answers yet. And anyways, God just speaks that way. So uh, uh, one of the other things you said, and, and then I want to get into the, into some Enneagram stuff. Um, you, you said radical hospitality. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the gifts that my mentors, but even my spiritual director who I have now, who you also know, uh, <laughs> is a definite capacity to, to be, hospitable it's a funny thing like at lakeridge we talk about hospitality is the ability to allow people to be themselves in your presence mm -hmm. that you can give people a sense that they're they're allowed to be themselves yeah that's that's a great expression i you know my own spiritual direction practice really unfolded with i have a number of directees who are pastors and ministry leaders and and again i didn't go searching that but it made as that unfolded even early on in my practice 
it made sense to me because I've always been wired towards leaders, leadership development to care. I think there's a, it's a unique animal to be a pastor or a ministry leader. And I have concerns about what happens in that place sometimes for people. And so then to be able to be a part of, of having, of creating that kind of space where people are free to say whatever they need to say, and um, it can be listened to and held and dare we say even respected. And I also think as human beings, we're really prone to wanting, like our roles do define us. Because when you were talking, I was thinking about, and this might be a little bit of my four on the Enneagram thing too. But um, so I was you know, getting deeply immersed in offering spiritual direction. I had understanding because the training, thinking that way so much. And then I started to notice that even in my friendships, when I would just be out with friends, then I don't know so much whether, because it's a dance, right? Whether it was that people, I was listening differently people were maybe offering things differently to me. But then I went through a little stretch of time was like, I don't want to be the spiritual director all the time. Like I need to be able to go out with a friend and not feel like somehow, and again, it's, a, you know, I'm not putting that on them or myself. It was kind of a combination of, because we are kind of prone, aren't we, to living out of our our roles, whatever they might be. I do want to be radically hospitable all the time, but I really don't want to always feel like I'm listening in that from that kind of space in a way that maybe to a certain extent does not allow me to then just be myself quite as totally freely and openly in that stretch of time, yeah. which is why spiritual direction is a contained ministry as well. You know, people seek yeah. out when they come, you, you have an hour together, you, you know, like there's a, there's a rhythm to all of that too. So in those places, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it is always a line, right? And, and some occupations have lines that are very different. And one of the, one of the tools of being a spiritual director, I'm assuming is some self-awareness things that you just, you just actually have to, you have to be aware of what's happening in you if you're going to listen well. Right. And I know, and this is partly what we wanted to talk about was, you know, a little bit around the Enneagram mm. and how has the Enneagram been uh, like, first of all, what is it me meant to you in terms of how it's been a, a tool of self-awareness? Yeah. And then do, do you, I don't actually don't know. Do you use it in your spiritual direction work? Like, is that one of the tools, yeah. primary tools that you use and why? Yeah, for me, the Enneagram has been a really helpful tool to, um, I think in a way, to go back to that word curiosity, to become more curious about my own patterns of being. Um, I became acquainted with the, with the Enneagram probably about 15 years ago or more, maybe now, I don't know, uh, through a little book, David Benner's book called The Gift of Being Yourself. It's a small little mm. book and it's not about yep. the Enneagram. It's, it's about true self, all self, Christian self-awareness, Christian spirituality, you know, transformation, growth. And in that book, he at one point just mentioned the Enneagram as a tool. And he was talking about what he called the core sin tendencies, which is kind of a harsh, like I, I, I would say even Benner would probably use different language now, even in talking about it than he might have when he wrote the book. But it's true, right, that they're at each number. And, um, and so he, he, was, he was naming them for all the numbers and he named the fours as envy. And what I was deeply aware of in myself wasn't, was what I would say was this constant comparative drone that went on inside me where I was so, and always fell short. Like the comparison game always left me in a deficiency stance. It just was 
it just was there like pretty all the time. And it didn't mean that I didn't function. I had had lots of successes, you know, I had, you know, career, I was capable um, in lots of ways, but the inner voice and the inner kind of drag was in the bent of the comparative energy that left me feeling deficient and insecure. And for me, I would include that that really had as much that had to do relationally almost more than say like skills and competencies, that it was a comparative thing that showed up relationally and where, and I had had some, you know, relational, like everybody, some things that had, you know, been wounding along the way, which had only confirmed that there must be something kind of inherently wrong with me, you know, that people would choose, would choose not to be in relationship with me or would find me undesirable in that way. But what was helpful, so there was a footnote at the end of that book. That's all he really said was just the core, you know, sin tendencies and whatever. And then there was a footnote at the end of the book. Well, of course, I bought the Riso and Hudson book that laid out the, I can't remember how many questions at that point, a long time ago. And Mm -hmm. that started my journey a little bit um, with it and um, in it. Um, And probably in some ways, the movement I would describe is and maybe again this would be a fours thing particularly but was the movement from self-absorption to self-awareness um, and there's such a difference to me around that i was i was pretty self-absorbed you know and in a plagued kind of way where just everything got filtered and i and i was actually quite self attuned in that i could recognize things and know them but i didn't know what to do with them so i felt stuck in that place of like well it's just going to always be like this. You're just, and that's not really self-awareness in quite the same way. Um, It's reflection, of course, and there's truth in it, but then making room for that awareness to become something other than just, you know, recognition and then stuckness um, was, was a huge part of the movement for me. Cause this is what I hear you say. So I have some self-awareness and I, I get to beat up on myself about the things that I just became self-aware of. Cause, cause maybe, maybe it helps for people listening to hear kind of what, what is, what is a four like, you know, so envy being one of the core, core passions, or, you know, I have, I have several fours that I know in my life. And I was talking to her just very recently. And I had said, I get this sense that you kind of like, like being sad. And, and she, she's a young, young woman. And she was like, I write the best music. Yeah. Whatever. I was as a seven, like sevens are kind of the opposite of that, pretty much like exactly the opposite of that. And, and uh, which is why we need each other in our, in our lives. But, but uh, what do you, like, this sounds like a personal question, but what were the themes that you beat yourself up about? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, the major theme that I beat myself up about was that there was something inherently wrong with me that le- meant other people wouldn't, just couldn't actually not would, couldn't and wouldn't really love me. So a focus on what is lacking, you know, you hear that with a four and awful lot, but for me, my journey, my family of origin story, um, never my mom and dad were separated and divorced when I was very young I never knew my dad I never met him Uh, my mom never remarried so there was never any kind of father figure in my life so the kind of even though I didn't feel responsible for that I was very young 
the kind of whole, like the kind of sort of inherent, and especially like growing up in the mm-hmm. late sixties and into the seventies when even divorce was not like, it just was a, like, it, I, I remember parent, my friend's parents asking me, cause this is what everybody asked each other. What does your dad do? That was the question everybody asked each other in the seventies. And I remember like having to say, well, I don't know. I've never met my dad. <laughs> and I really don't have a recollection of even one adult being able to engage me in that way. And I see that now largely as contextual in a lot of ways. I mean, we just didn't have the practice almost because it was, you know, sort of denied or hidden or whatever else. But that inherent kind of niggling sense that that, that I had to always be kind of working pretty hard to make sure that people didn't see that part of me that then was going to make sure that they couldn't or wouldn't or whatever really love me or accept me. That was for sure the theme. And, and, you know, it was kind of a relational crisis that, that was the pathway to healing, which is so true of all the numbers, actually, that there will be a particular kind of a three, it's maybe uh, some kind of failure, and ex- like a public more failure of some sort that they can't, you know, every, it, there is something. And, and that's also, I think, the gift of the Enneagram is we become less afraid of the things that come along for us and more actually see them as part of the, the very way that our healing and transformation, if we can, you know, kind of hang in there. And there I give credit to my fourness, because although I might not have that same, I don't ever recall really liking feeling sad. It probably has to do with subtype a little bit more so that wasn't for me the, the bent there as much. I'm not afraid of the hard emotions. It's part of what probably helps me be hopefully a pretty present spiritual director as well. Fours will tend to have the capacity to move towards. So even in that place, as distressing as it was, and this particular relational crisis that happened, that kind of forced me to the very edges of myself and kind of to that place of like, well, uh, is this it? Is Am I going to live my whole life listening to this voice in my head um, that's beating me up and, and uh, you know, not believing that there's much lovable or beloved about me or whatever? Or is this actually now an opportunity to become, to know myself um, in a much deeper way than, than simply whatever that kind of evidence might want to show me? And, and so, yeah, it was a, a very painful journey, actually, <laughs> when I recollect back. And I can't say it's over, but I can speak to the, all of a sudden, there you are living out of a, a new kind of place a new way of seeing things and it's not all of a sudden but it kind of feels that way and when you're asked to kind of draw the you know the steps that got you there you're like I'm not really sure I remember a few things God you know leading me to some reading a breath prayer that I used for years as a grounding returning okay this is the truth actually sort of stubborn persistence in that way of like there's got to be something more than this <laughs> to how, you know, and, and then to come to the place where now those things don't undo me in the same way. It doesn't mean I don't have vulnerabilities in those directions still, or that I can't still feel relationally insecure or wonder sometimes if I'm enough or whatever that means, you know, to actually, but it's not, they're almost like, ah, there you are, my friend again. And you're welcome here too, because you actually don't get all the airtime and you're not actually even the dominant lens through which I'm seeing the world. So I'm not as afraid of you anymore. It's an interesting thing because, you know, we, we haven't, we're, and we don't, we're not going to unpack every number on the Enneagram, but, but it is interesting that 
that each each of the numbers has really something that that we're trying to avoid or we're trying to steer away from consciously or unconsciously, you know, whatever language you want to use for that. I think for me, one of the things I'm observing, which is a, as a seven, it's really unfortunate is that, that the thing that you're really trying to avoid is that is really the only way to depth. It's, it's really the only way to become a deeper yeah. human. And, yeah. and it's like, so for the seven, right, it's pain and we're not huge fans of pain. And I remember uh, where I was exactly when I read that the first time and just went, at first I was like, what do you mean? That's not true. I, I run towards pain for, for others. <laughs> I, that's my job is to care for people when they're having a hard time. And, and it actually is. And it, and it actually is even one of my passions to do so that I, I, I really do see it as one of the greatest gifts of being a pastor is that I get to care for people in the midst of sometimes some of the hardest things that are going on in their life and story. So at first I was like, that can't be right. And then, and then I started unpacking and asking some more questions about my own interior life. And then all of a sudden I, I start seeing how, how quite easily I, I have distracted myself away from painful scenarios, painful experiences, even people who I perceive as somebody who may hurt me. And, and now I would describe it more like in my younger years and before I probably knew anything about the Enneagram, I, I really would describe it as like, it feels like a rolling dark cloud that's been there all along. And I'm just, as long as I keep doing some fun and keeping on top of things, it's yeah. like, I get to stay out in front of it. Yeah. And, and I, I remember and, and, and the Enneagram is unique because it, it, especially in a spiritual context or a faith-based context, it does give you some like particular sins or passion that you're prone to, which was, was profound for me all my life. And I, I preached this all my life. I have, I've understood that the Bible says, you know, flee from all sin and at which, which means run. You know, my that means yeah. run, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and um, and and really, actually, with the gift of God's help. So, so I get to backtrack to find out that there was a particular sin that I was fleeing from on a regular basis <laughs> was shocking. Revealed some real truth yeah. about my life and where where I'm really avoiding certain things. Yeah. But then it also gave me this great courage to, to stop and, and with God's help. And this, it really was a God's help thing to kind of turn around. And, and in my spiritual director's language was to turn around, have a good look at my, that dark cloud that was coming and say, what is it that you are trying to teach me? Yeah. And are you going to have to consume me? The, the most terrifying part of that journey was to find out, uh, yes, actually, it is going to have to consume me <laughs> that journey, but even subsequent journeys around pain and fear of pain and those things um, have helped me um, to, I believe, come to a much deeper place in what I believe to be true of God. Yes. What I, what I believe to be true about my own capacity to be courageous, yeah. that, that courageous isn't just about standing up against something that it actually is allowing it to, to go right through me.
that is terrifying. It, for for a seven, it it really is one of the most terrifying things. Interesting. Tara's a two. You, you should you should pick on Tara. She's a two. Yeah. Yeah. Ask her what she needs. Yeah. <laughs> because so it's hard me. for her to say that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. He knows it well. It is hard yeah. for me to identify and express my needs. Actually, it's a fun little, you know it's a joke between us, but it is a practice that I yeah. twos definitely need me in particular, but yeah, it's been a long journey that way for me too. One of the questions we can pick on me, I can talk about it too, but I was going to ask like it there, the Enneagram does sometimes sound really negative when it's your own number. I think we are, like Evan said, we are all excited about everybody else's numbers and they sound so great. And you hear the gifts in that. So what are some of the gifts of your numbers and how can people not only see the hard parts of themselves, but also how can it bring joy and freedom yeah. for people? Yeah. Yeah. I love the question because even before I kind of specifically, I, I have a little bit of a love hate relationship with the Enneagram truthfully, even though I've done training now and I've offered workshops and I can bear witness that you asked me earlier about, do I use it in spiritual direction? Um, you know, a lot of my directees will even know their numbers. Sometimes they want to, or even if they don't, it's a way of listening you know, maybe question some awareness there, but truthfully there, and as it explodes even more and more in sort of pop culture, I, I feel like there is often kind of a negative bent. And even when you, you know, read some of them, the practitioners and the gurus, and it's like, uh, and sometimes that can be the way we're hearing something. But I also think sometimes it is the lens through which we choose. If we know ourselves, as God's beloved, that at the beginning of all time, we were created in the image of God. Um, if, and that's at the heart of the Enneagram too, that really all of these numbers are reflections of God's divine essence. And we carry that within us. Um, there is something about that that has tremendous beauty and joy and empowerment. And, um, and sometimes we're just prone to seeing the hard, maybe, you know, and to believing the negative or seeing the negative. I'm not sure. But I, I know that for myself, I feel pretty um, inclined and committed towards when I do offer it, to try to offer it in a way that does not allow that to become just another dark cloud that now we're sort of oppressed under and, and uh, can't we ever see, see our way clear through. Having said that, you know, some we can't we can't deny either that it often is kind of a tough painful journey to become to come face to face with our truth and our reality. And um, Tara, I've worked with a lot of twos, and I know how long and painful the journey for a two can be when they kind of come into deeper honesty of their own motivations and their own way of being, and then feel a little adrift. Like if that's what am I supposed to do? This is at the, this is who I am. You know, that's what we believe. We believe these things are, well, that's actually who I am when God's busy saying, well, no, 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 no. That's actually just a, that's kind of a tarnished, you know, off kilter. Um, the beauty of who we are, of who you are, you know, in that, in that sense is something that actually does have the potential to, to shine in its goodness. And, and um, so it's a great, it is a really important awareness, you know, Fours are so able <laughs> to kind of let life be what it is, like just not like take it on, like let it let, feel it, you know, we're, we're kind of the empathic um, um, center in some ways, you know, and, and so there is such a goodness in that, like I, I don't 
I really don't necessarily feel afraid of my emotions or others very often at all. That's not a dominant response. And that is deeply good because in a way it keeps me with the what is, you know, the, the reality um, of, of kind of what is. Another really incredible thing about fours is we're so drawn to beauty and it can get expressed differently. I'm not, I mean, my own, I'm not really an artist in the purest form. I say I'm a, I'm a connoisseur of art in all, you know, in that way. I, I, but the draw to beauty and learning even for myself now how if I'm slumping or if I'm in a bit of a funk where there is a heaviness to <laughs> Wendell Berry's line at the beginning of his poem, The Peace of Wild Things, when despair for the world <laughs> grows within me, that's a fours, that's a fours kind of line, right? And so even when I'm noticing that sometimes to say, oh my goodness, like go look out at the window, go look out the window and the beauty of whatever it is, which is really in every season, although I am glad winter's over, <laughs> but there's something about that draw to that, that actually becomes a flow of, I believe God's created nature, creator nature, what he's offering to us through the world. Um, so I would name those things. Uh, I mean, I could name others, but it's been a journey for me too, to accept the real goodness, but I truly believe that's at the heart of the Enneagram. It's the movement to our truer self. It's the, it's the releasing the ways our ego particularly, because that's what's manifesting is the way our ego wants to convince us that something different will bring us life when in fact it won't. <laughs> and so it's, it's that movement in that way. And, and um, I, I wanna say, I don't know whether this will come up. One of the things that was on my mind coming into this as well, not even just about the number, but as I work with the Enneagram, the training I took with Jerome Wagner, who, um, whose website and his, his sort of, focus is called the Enneagram, the Enneagram spectrum of personality types. And he talks about lenses on the world. But one of the things I appreciated so much in the training was he used this analogy of a board of directors. And he said, we all have a board of directors, an internal board of directors. And um, we have our go-to. We always want to hear what that board of directors says and likely that's our core number you know like I'm always I'm gonna you know and they might be might be our wings might be um like Clara Lowridge has done a bunch of work with harmony triads so it might be you know that on our it might be our whatever it might be we have a few we're really our other high numbers you know what kind of filters up to the surface we always want to know what they say but the truth is part of the movement is towards the integration of knowing we actually have capacity to access. So what might my nine, you know, I don't, I don't score high in the nine, what might my nine want to say in this particular situation? Or what, what might my three or my one? And there's a movement there. And, and somebody else I've heard uses the analogy of the bunch of shoes. We all have a bunch of shoes, but we have our favorite pair. We like to go wear, but we need different types of shoes, right? Like we need the boots for winter and we need the, we need that. Well, you might never need high heels oven, but we need things that are going to, you know, make our calves. <laughs> yeah, a good Friday night. Friday you know, night, you never know. <laughs> and we need our running shoes and we need our, our Birkenstocks and we need our, yeah. there's something about that analogy that's really helpful yeah. to me because it's not locking us in. I even find I'm caring less whether people can say their number so precisely. It's a process of discovery. I, I love the, the shoe metaphor. And, and I, and I asked, cause I, I really do like the idea that it's like, yeah, you have your favorite pair of shoes, but sometimes you need other shoes and you got to access different parts of, 
of what you're capable of doing. And it doesn't matter what you do or like what you do for an occupation or whatever, that there, there are moments when, when you have to see differently. And I I think I would say that's definitely one of the gifts that studying so many, all of the numbers and not just my own, like this, this would be one of the, the challenges for me personally is when I encounter folks that have just, they, they did a test and was free or whatever. And they find out their number and then they just study their own number. I think it leaves them deficient in their capacity to understand the world and how other people are seen. And, and so for me, one of the hidden gifts of the Enneagram was that I, I became quite empathetic towards other other numbers and a little bit jealous sometimes of, of some of the other numbers that, that that oh they they literally can do that and like you said this and I, I was trying to think of the parallel for me because the seven and the four are quite different and then actually not all that different in some <laughs> some ways and it's like you you as a four have this capacity to hold the broken and see beauty in it. And, and I think you have the capacity to see the, the true, the true beauty in it. When, when I have to hold something broken, I can become quite uncomfortable with it so that I, I try to turn it into something that's less broken, Yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, you know, the term is reframe, but to stay away from that term, it's like, yeah, I just want it see something better that's there so I don't have to see the broken. And I, and you, you have, we have some similar things here. Like we both have a heart for, for the people of Haiti and have been to Haiti together, which, which was super fun. Uh, Tara too. We all got to be on that Uh, trip. That was fun. I'd like to redo that trip. Yeah. That was a good trip. Right. But I have a tendency when I go to Haiti to try to, to, look past the broken to find the good. Whereas I can see that you have the capacity to hold the broken for what it is and also see beauty. It sounds the same, but internally it's not actually the same. It's a different way of hopefully coming to some of the same, same reality, some truths, but so it is one of the things that I always find myself second guessing myself. Is that, is this like, Am I just trying to make this feel better for me and everybody around me? Or am I being authentic and truthful about what's really happening? I I have learned that um, the more that I can name the name it and just say, that I don't like that. That hurts that. I don't know what that means, but um, the, the closer I feel like I get to, to something that's true. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and can you name something so important that we we can only we can know that internal. You know, some some the enneagram will talk about it's not so much what you do as why. So a number of people can be doing the same thing. It's about this internal space, which makes total sense to me when I think about what what Jesus is most interested in. Right? It's the transformation of the inner. You know, so that there's a well of all of it. It's not just an external kind of um, imposed on. And only we can all can know. Like we can only I can know the why or the the authenticity of. Um, but it also I think we can beat ourselves up with that question as well. And sometimes we have to just let it be. 
like say, well, I don't really know right here. And that's actually a kind of act of trust too, you know, because our motives are hardly ever pure, any of us, right? And so then if yeah. that's what we're looking for, that just becomes a different trap. Um, what we're really looking for, right, is for God to help us know ourselves in the depth of who we are and to make room for the grace that longs more than even we do for us to have the kind of flourishing abundant life that flows from that place. And then to kind of follow that, <laughs> you know, and it, and, it, and it sounds easy maybe, but in a way maybe it is easier sometimes than we, than we kind of make it out to be when we, because if we turn ourselves into a project, um, that does not feel helpful to me either. We're, we're not projects. We're such dynamic, interesting, multifaceted, created, you know, human, human creations. And, mm -hmm. and um, that to me, yeah, then feels like that's, that's part of the pathway through to what can really come um, as goodness as part of this tool. But well, it is hard you, work. The truth of it is it's kind of hard work in its own way. So there we are with a contradiction, <laughs> like most of life, right? <laughs> so I, I got a backtrack food like 60 seconds ago. Yep. That's the, when we, oh, I'm going to repeat this and butcher it really badly, but it's something just happened for me that I want to, I want to point out. So that's the grace of God that wants us to experience this wholeness of who we are. Yeah. It's like, it's funny because when you said that, like for me personally, it was kind of an exhale of like, just, oh man, that, that, that feels so true. Yeah. That it's like that that's actually what God you don't want to fix. He doesn't just want to always have it be a renovation project, but actually wants us to see what what this real true gift is of how yeah. he made us and who he made us to be. And it's more, and we, it's more restoration than renovation, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Hmm. That's beautiful. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. And it, I I really I really don't think that that's something we explore very often as yeah. a, as a human race, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and, and maybe that is one of the, the true gifts of, of being um, well-versed even on the Enneagram as a tool, to be honest with you, is that it's true. It, it points out some negative things and, and, and maybe the work has to be done in seeing the positive things that the Enneagram also points out, which, which we aren't prone to do. You know, I, it's funny in one of the books I've been reading here, um, it goes through the, it's called why emotions matter. And it has been a, a source of information for me on some of the podcast entries. And, and the authors are going through a bunch of different emotions and the, they're all pretty much bad. So, so, so far they've been pretty much bad. But the last we one. I like to call them hard emotions. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'm seven. Right. They're bad. <laughs> bad. <laughs> um, this, this is what's so interesting is the chapter I'm just reading is on happiness. Hmm. So it's finally got to a good chapter. <laughs> you know, so I open up the chapter. I start reading. I'm only about halfway through the chapter. And what, what is really interesting is the, the first thing they start out saying is this is the, the signal of, of the emotion of happiness is that a desire has been met. Ultimately, that's kind of how they start every chapter. Talks about how happiness is this emotion that you experience that, that actually holds in balance the other emotions. And even though everybody wants happiness, they want to seek happiness, we're actually prone 
to see the hard or the broken in particular in ourselves. And so happiness is the thing that actually brings us back to center. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that we are still pursuing something happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, (laughs) and that actually, this is kind of a weird deal. I'm about to, I can't believe I'm about to say this. Pursuing happiness is actually a good thing. When, when we used to always talk, no, no, you know, happiness is avoiding the broken world and all those things. It's, and, and I, I would add, they used happiness. I would add joy, yes. but it brings balance back. Yeah. But instinctively we go to negative. Like that's just instinctively as humans, yeah. we see negative in ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, you can get a job review or whatever. Yeah. There's a list of 30 great things about you. And that last one's got something negative in there and you go to bed and you, this has not been that often to me anymore because I don't get those anymore. I get perfect. You just get perfect. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> but that's the one you hear. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter if you got 29 other good comments, yes. you hear the negative one. And so this, this pursuit of, of happiness or joy actually does bring some kind of balance back to our, our lives and our stories. So. Well, it is interesting, and it's why I believe, because connected to that is, if we are not regularly or, or pretty intentionally and persistently also grounding ourselves in our identity as God's beloved, like that's the happiness or the joy. Yeah. Now, I'm not trying to yes. oversimplify that in a way, but that's why without that, um, which is why that's so crucial to this kind of work and the Enneagram work, um, that that we both start and we muddle along in the middle and we end and it's all held in that deepened kind of awareness of who am I? What, who, what is my identity mm-hmm. actually? Um, and, and that we kind of get a lifetime to practice that too, right? To know ourselves yeah. from that place and then to live from there so that it can be about balancing or a reframing or an actual, I would call it a deeper truth out of which we're mm-hmm. then, looking at the other pieces that are also present. So, yeah, yeah. it's an interesting uh, way of, of seeing things, right. That, that we actually are seeking balance Yep. and, and we don't need to ignore the broken in order to experience joy. But are there, are there anything else that you, that you just go, I really would want people to hear this as they seek Jesus and seek some form of self-awareness in their own life and story. Is there any debisms? You, you know, you get a debism. And I joke to my soul stream friends that that's my goal is to get quoted, you know, in the material that we offer in courses or whatever. See, I, I, I have deep desire that one of my videos will go viral someday and and i don't care if it's a good one or a bad one i I just want something just just the notoriety of the the viral video well but anyways (laughs) anything that that you want this sense that i just want people to know (laughs) they've been given everything they need by a god who created us and who and and scripture tells us that, you know, we've been given everything we need for. And 
I know that that can just be a phrase and it's like, well, what does that actually mean? And I don't ever want to demean people's, you know, the depth of their journey by offering that. But I think the journey towards coming to even just explore that, if that's, if that could even be a possibility, it's like a whole way of trusting uh, who God is on another level than maybe our perceptions of like God's here to meet my demands or you know I've got a picture of what the outcome should look like so it that must be also you know the way God it must be right because like I am like as smart as God aren't I like but something that allows us to relax into like receive our journey for what it is so that we may know like what it means to live our own lives kind of as fully as we're able and again that might sound kind of simple but I I feel like in my own experience I can see how that's true and it's true in the hard places and the griefs um you know last summer when Sophie died and that whole experience which was pretty like (laughs) heartbreaking I remember though you know a couple of weeks later finding myself reflecting on love and how could it be possible that this little life that I'd never even met, I loved so much. There's so much of God's fingerprints in that, you know, that I could only experience really by making room for in the what is. And it wasn't in, it didn't come as some sort of way of denying my, the depth of my grief or, and that was a murky grief because you're not just grieving yourself. You mm. you've just grieved for kids so much, but something about that, that's like that. Oh, that's, that's God pouring God's life out into everything, which is what we say we believe, <laughs> you know, that that's what Jesus offered even through his, his, his life and death and resurrection, that then we live in this, you know, in something other than, but it's something other than that's still right in our reality. And I wonder if, opening to what our reality has to offer us so the opening to that place of trusting that in fact mm-hmm. um what is mine is part of how god has made me and so there's actually an element of coming it's the augustine right the know yourself know god know you like or in so many writers howard thurman right who said don't ask what the world needs ask what you like what brings you life well that'll be what the world and so to me those things are like that is god's um, sort of economy at work right through all of our little DNAs and um, I feel kind of passionate about that I guess I can hear it as I say it it's like I care a lot about that actually <laughs> so there you go it's not a debism it's a it's a compilation well, it of so really, my own life but anyway I am really glad I asked yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. I think that is that is a great place yeah. to end and um, I hope you get quoted for that. <laughs> well, I'll at least maybe if Tara doesn't edit it That's out, right. it'll at least end up on the. On oh, the that'll book. make it in. <laughs> <It'll>, <laughs> yeah, that'll make Thank it in. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for <laughs> creating such generous space for me today, too, and, and for the fun of exploring these things that I think we all care deeply about. It's the gift of that kind of meaningful yeah. conversation with one another, um, also affords you know, delight to have that kind of authentic, meaningful conversation. So you, you have, you have, you know, you just poured such goodness into me today. So thank you.
No, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for your time so much. We, I, I really do appreciate it. I know everybody's got lots of things to do and, and, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm super thrilled you listen. Yeah. We'll talk again. You're welcome. Take care.